So uh, I was looking at this article you sent, Courtney, and uh, I think this is a awesome article. I, I don't know if you if you guys had no, you I, had I never, to look at I haven't looked at the article. <laughs> I never do. You never do. <laughs> Coming blind. So, I mean, the title the title of it is a financial survival guide for young adults, and it's and it's by Rob Carrick. He's uh, one of our favorites. Yeah, he he's a, a columnist for the Global Mail, and I don't know if that's a title for this show, but it. I agree with what he says, but I have a spin of my own to put on all of his points. It, well, the article is called A Survival Guide for Young Adults, and it kind of just hits on, on different aspects of your financial life. And, and I really like this article because, I mean, in the first sentence of it said, um, let's save your college and university age kids from getting an F in personal finance. And I think I think that right there hits on why this this topic is so important. We don't talk about personal finance. We don't. We, we, it's kind of this taboo untouched subject and it's kind of ridiculous that it's not more talked about or taught i mean we did an episode on on uh, educating kids um in school a while ago but i mean this is kind of a different thing altogether you know it's 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 funny that there's no formal education in our society on personal finance i never received any formal education on it i i just find it interesting and fascinating myself so i'm self-educated think think of all the things that we we learn in high school like, like i remember spending so much time reading shakespeare and i i haven't i haven't i'm never gonna need shakespeare yet i never learned about personal finance in school well i, I don't think there's anything wrong with learning about shakespeare and understanding fine lit you know literature in general but I, I think educating people on how to manage their and the, you know what the problem probably is 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 everyone has their own idea about what being good at personal finance is, and so there there is no acceptable you know this is the way to do it because it's personal right. It's but personal. I, I think you can you can do things like teach people how how to set up budgets, track their expenses and stuff, and that's something that. I think everyone needs to do regardless of, of your, your opinions on personal finance. Like you don't have, you just got to be aware of how to go about the process of being financially responsible. But if, if you just say as an adult, you were able to successfully navigate life without a budget, which I think would be challenging, but just say you were able to do it and retire and, and live comfortably. Would you make that important to the to your kids, if if you didn't need that to succeed for for some, un, you know, just just say you were naturally frugal, so you, you didn't need a budget, but your kids weren't naturally frugal and they could desperately use a budget. If you didn't pass that knowledge onto them, you're just setting them up for failure. But I think I think it's one of those things. So yeah, like if those parents aren't aren't gonna put it on their kids, well then maybe the teachers are, and then. That's that. That's their way to, to create that awareness. Is, is someone's helping them with it? Then, well, you know, as a, as a society, a, a government sh- one one of the aspects they should approach from is a cost avoidance perspective. And if they can help people manage their personal finances and not become uh, more reliant on the public sector for handouts and and and, and meeting their survival needs. That's a cost avoidance. So I think it's on a government to step up and, and and put this in our education system and make it mandatory. I mean, I can assume that everyone kind of listening to this podcast today is is kind of it makes makes personal finance and personal finance education a priority. But I mean, we only have we we have a lot of listeners here, but we don't have all of the all of the population. Well, it, we we have a very small cross section of the population, and, and a very uh, once very very slanted to personal finance. But if, I I never received any formal personal finance education. Did you guys? 
I did. No. Oh, like formal, no. Formal, formal, no. yeah. So uh, it, it's really, the the people that are giving you the personal finance knowledge, like this podcast, you're, you're placing, I'm asking this question to you guys, are you placing uh, that how that person succeeded in terms of how valuable the information they're passing on is? Or, or are you able to take what they're giving you at face value? There, there's the opinion side of it, and then you're, you're saying there's the, the factual side of what you're taking from that? Well, no, what I'm saying is if, if I give you some information or some advice on personal finance, you're taking that advice and you're, you're saying it's, it's good information or bad information based on what? Based on my, my, success, my successes in personal finance or just the fact that I sound like I know what I'm talking about or that I have some educational credentials. Like when someone gives you personal finance advice, your ability to accept it or believe it is based on what you know that's sort of I, I would say how they how they that person is doing in life so Trevor if advice came from you I mean I'd find that pretty credible because you are retiring at 55 you have you are honest and transparent on this podcast about decisions you've made and and how those decisions have have resulted in the kind of the outcome you're living today and, and what you wish you maybe did differently. So I think because you're honest and transparent with us that we can really appreciate the advice you bring forward. And see, I disagree with that 100%. Because there's so many circumstances and so many life events that, that, that unfold in someone's life that could make your situation, you know, my advice may not be applicable to you because of you know, a whole set of circumstances that are different in my life than yours. So I, I think I think what you said is what most people do is they they look at, okay, this person was successful. I will listen to what they have to say. I think a good example, like if you look at like health food, is it's the same thing where people who have overcome adversity and be, and like they've made their lives better because they've eaten healthy, they like you know they end up kind of telling their stories and everybody's got their different opinion on how to eat healthy and be healthy and it's all based on what worked for them and I think if like you said you can't just go to one person you end up usually looking at a bunch of people and taking the advice from all of them so I think you got to do the same with personal finance where you got to go and, and like you said different scenarios so maybe each one, if you're if you're accounting for all these different things, you're going to cover more basis for different scenarios of what might happen in your future. See, I agree with you 100%. Now, it, you have to take it from a bunch of people and, and, and spot a pattern or a trend or a consensus. Is that kind of what you're saying? Then I think there's the whole thing is we were saying, well, they, they should have in school, they should have personal finance things. But it, it, if you're only being taught by one person, are, is, or is that enough information from... But, but if you built a, cur- a curriculum, it, it would be based on, on based uh, on multiple people's opinions and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah a whole yeah. bunch of inputs, right? Not just one person's. So then the teacher's just presenting twenty different people's ideas on what personal finance should be. And this is why it's so important to have personal finance be formally educated to our society. I, I think, anyway. Like, if you just if you just stop and think about it, I can't imagine how better we would be off as a society if we had that formal education. Well, you know, and having the knowledge is only half of it, right? So we always say personal finance is behavior, not math for the most part. So even if you knew, uh, you know, you should save 20% of your income for retirement, even if you knew that, that doesn't mean you're going to actually do it, but at least you have the knowledge, right? So our society may not be any better because people's behaviors wouldn't have been changed or, or they wouldn't be motivated to change. 
but at least you'd have the knowledge. And I, I say, go back to Mike's thing about eating healthy. Maybe you don't need to eat healthy when you're young because your body burns so many calories. But if you know what eating healthy is and, and the impact it has on your body, at least you have that knowledge so you can change your eating behavior in the future. And and that's really powerful because we like we we always say, knowledge is is again half the battle. I I do want to add something in here about kind of education and I mean Trevor, you have a business background as well um, from school and and I have a business background as well from uh, from from my uh, degree, and I feel like there is this misconception, this giant misconception about the fact that business students. Are, are more well-equipped and more and more knowledgeable about finance. And yes, maybe in the kind of the corporate world or organizational level, but in terms of personal finance, there is no, there is, there's nothing taught in, in, in pertaining to personal finance. I mean, I was no, I'm no better off in personal finance because of my degree than in, before I started. Well, I agree with you hundred percent because I mean, the only skill I might have that's transferable is I can use a spreadsheet yeah for the most part you know that's basically all, all that that translates from being a cpa to uh being able to manage personal finances i, I think is just spreadsheet skills because it, it is behavior driven so so mike you're in engineering uh, but you you do quite well from a personal finance standpoint and it's because of your frugal behavior not your your business knowledge right for me, I'm j- just kind of learning and getting used to using budgets. In the past few years, I was just tracking my expenses. And I mean, that's all I've really done. And and now I finally built up that that record of how much I'm spending. And and it was, I started realizing, I was like, it's quite easy to follow this budget. And it was all just behavioral based. And it was not wanting to go out and buy food every day or like stuff like that. But you, you, you just, your nature, you don't need uh, behavior modifications and you don't need a budget to really succeed. It's just, it, it lets you know that you are moving in the right direction. It's, it's kind of it's like a, a confirmation. Of it, like, it, it, because it's confirmation, right? Every, yeah. Every, every month you're, you're looking at it and saying, okay, I'm meeting these amounts and I, I'm not going, I'm not spending crazy amounts. And it, it's that whole thing. Knowledge is power. And just knowing that how much I'm spending, it's just a lot. It's clarity, I guess. I, I think what you're doing is you're setting. So right now your financial life is pretty simple. But when it get, becomes complex, you're setting down the, the foundation to be able to deal with a more complex financial life. Yeah, and I think also it, it helps you with savings. It's something uh, I, I've been I've been doing more is I want I've been saving more, and it allows me to see how much I'm spending and then how much extra I have to save, and and then it helps yeah for those more complex times when you do have more expenses and stuff. And having some sort of financial plan. You know, just saving for the sake of saving doesn't work for a lot of people. They need to be saving for something specific. So having a budget helps you cross that mental threshold. So before we get into the article today that we kind of want to delve into, let's, uh, I realize we, we haven't even done an intro, so uh, we'll launch into that. So welcome to Simple Money Solutions Podcast, your path to financial independence through deliberate lifestyle choices. My name is Courtney. I'm joined with Trevor. Hello. And Michael. Hi. And today on the show, we are talking about just entering the world as a young adult and, and kind of navigating the personal finance realm. So let's jump into this article. And, it, and it's really good. There's a lot of good points in here. Did, did anything, first off, did anything surprise you about kind of in this article? Trevor, I know you read it. Yeah, no, it, it was a it was a good article. I, I read a lot of Rob Carrick's stuff, so I, 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 I appreciate his voice and his writing. 
But uh, I, I agree and disagree with some of the things he said in here, which as you get to them, I, I'm going to uncover. So the, the kind of the first point here is that... Um, well, let, let's just say, so the, the, the article is titled A Financial Survivor Guide for Young Adults. Oh, when we say young adults, we're, we're excluding students, generally speaking, like it's mainly young professionals, like, well, or, it, like it could students be, included. Or, I mean, in the article, it, it, it refers to student loans. So I mean, st- okay, it, it, I say recent grads, probably recent grads. Okay. So yeah, like people are just getting into the work world and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the first one here is that that kind of, that kind of population has a unique financial challenge. So Rob Carrick here says... Um, this unique financial challenge includes uh, fast rising tuition fees, a tough job market that he says loves, loves to slot young people into contract jobs and temporary work without benefits or pensions. Also an expensive housing market and demographic trends that will put increasing pressure on you to pay for health care costs, government benefits and government benefits of aging baby boomer generation. So I, I, I kind of disagree with this this whole thought process he's got on this one. And if the worst thing any generation can do is is kind of look back and, and measure themselves against the generation before them. And so I don't think this Gen Y generation has any unique challenges. They just have challenges, as I had challenges, as my parents had challenges. The, the, the times change, so the challenges change, but it's they're not unique. Every generation is going to have a challenge. And, and this well, one says, without benefits or pensions. Well... Uh, I, I I don't think that's a unique. That that's just a fact. That that's just what you're up against. When you were when you were a young professional, it was probably the same thing. Like people were saying the the challenges of of your generation and the things you guys have to face. Like it's probably like I think every every generation it's unique challenges because it's new challenges. You know the, the the flip side of that is is you know every generation has unique opportunities too that 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 the generation before them didn't. For instance. Your generation has uh, a lot of technology at your disposal, which, say, the baby boomers didn't when they were coming of age. So, yeah, you have challenges, but you also you know, let's talk about the the unique opportunities that generation has at their disposal as well. So, they tend to offset. So, I, I'm not saying they don't have challenges, but you can't just look at that in a silo and say, "Oh, poor Gen Ys or poor Millennials." They do have some obstacles and I would caution them don't try to follow the generation before you otherwise it will be a challenge you know you your generation has its own things that are important own uh, objectives you're trying to meet and if you're trying to find a job with a a great pension plan and great benefits you're probably going to have a life of frustration because those jobs just won't be there but what you will have, for instance, is you're going to, a lot of people have this um, location independent employment opportunities. Well, baby boomers didn't have that. They had to go in to a factory and office and grind it out. Well, a lot of young people today, they have the, the opportunity to work from home or, or that they could, they can now afford to live be, because they work remotely. They don't have to live in like the core of a very expensive city. They can live out in a low cost region and still be collecting a, a big city income. So there's an example of some opportunities that this generation has that baby boomers, for instance, did not. So, Trevor, just kind of looking at that then, would you say that the challenges you faced when when you were, like Mike said, a young professional, was kind of equivalent to the challenges this this generation faced and, and even every generation before and after you? Well, my generation was kind of faced with, 
how technology was going to affect jobs. And it, it did affect jobs. It, it, it eliminated a lot of jobs. So people would, would have gone to school t- to be educated in a particular field only to find out that technology had made that that uh, line of work obsolete. So th- that was one uh, problem I seen. And I just... You know, one thing with houses, and, and I'm not saying they're not expensive now. Like they, they're definitely going up faster than income. So I'll give the this generation that 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 housing is very expensive. But housing well, goes. Wait, in wait, 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 wait. You said like going back to the whole thing is is opportunities. Is the fact that the approach of keeping with the past generations is we'll buy a house. The new approach to the new generation and it's a new opportunity is rent, and it g- gives you more flexibility and more opportunity. No, I agree. So I, agree. I don't think I don't think it's a, it's a challenge, like you said. I think it's an opportunity. It, it, yeah, maybe it is. By not buying a house, you now have the opportunity to to uh, experience different employment opportunities in different parts of the country. You're not you're not tied to a a mortgage like a boat anchor. So that that's a good point. Like, so why look at that as is a burden? Why not look at it as an opportunity? I, I like that. So you by not being drawn into the housing market because you can't afford to, you actually have broadened your employment opportunities. Like, Trevor, was back when you were purchasing your first home, was the, was that, was it, was it a lot more, I know it was probably, was it a lot more affordable, but also looking at the rent spectrum, was, was that, has, do you, do you feel, I mean, you haven't rented in a while, but do you feel that the renting market has kind of come along and become more progressive and, and maybe more advantageous and, and just maybe easier to get into? So one thing that's never changed and it never will is is housing and transportation will always be your most expensive things in life. You know, that that's never going away. But I think, I know my parents, I remember them saying, I don't know how your generation is going to afford to own a house. You know, I remember them saying that. And it, it, compared to when they bought houses, I mean, they they, they, they just went up to the point they, they didn't, they, they thought they were going to become unaffordable. I remember when houses broke the $100,000 threshold and and everyone was just, you know, the average home was now more than $100,000 and it was just, you know, everyone was awestruck by it. So it's, and I remember when a, um, a Corvette, when it, when it broke the $10,000 mark, it, it's all, those two things are always going to, because of the things you spend the most amount of money on, I, I guess. Like, do those things, do those transportation and housing, do, do those seem to you to be, uh, huge obstacles or, or burdens in your in your future they do they do I'd like when no. you well it's something it's the thing you're the most concerned about financially i i don't know because like for me i i'm renting and i plan on renting and definitely into the future so it's it's just i'm looking at how much does rent cost that mo- like it's the same amount each month i'm just focused on like can i, I am i making enough like is my income uh, matching my my rent price and it is but, but, so I'm okay with that. And but it consumes the biggest as expenses go. It's the biggest one in your budget. It is, yeah. But like to your question, is it something I, I'm worried about concerned. in the future? Or concerned about in the future? I'm I'm not. No. Oh, back back to my earlier question though, Trevor was was the rental market as appealing as it is now? Because right now, like there are so many great options, a lot of great. Um, a lot of great businesses own and kind of um, take care of a lot of apartments and buildings, and it's a very it's a very great kind of experience to be in. Was it was it that was renting as popular as it is now? 
I think a lot of people did rent. I mean, the mortgage rules have evolved over the years. There was a time when you needed 25% down payment to buy a house. That kept a lot of people with good incomes out of the housing market. So they were renters, right? And then it went down to 10%. So it brought some people into the housing market who who now could afford to buy a house. So, and and it, it's, it dropped eventually down to 5%. So that even brought more people into the housing market. So it uh, and now they're tightening the mortgage rules up, so it, it's restricting people. So renting's becoming more popular. So it, I think it goes in cycles. So next point here in Rob Carrick's article is he says not many people give a damn about those challenges. So he says that the business community keeps thinking up new ways to devalue young workers. For instance, there's just there's the just in time job where you wait on a daily basis to see if you'll get called into work. Politicians keep talking about the middle class and families, not you. Parents and millennials understand the problem. I've never heard of that. Have you guys heard of that? This just-in-time jobs? From my understanding, it's more of just... Like on-call. On-call, yes. Like you were kind of contracted and then on... Almost like I would... My equivalent would be like kind of a substitute teacher. Yeah, yeah. That's what I thought too. So it's... And, and that's a, a tough way to... You know, you how do you how do you set up a life if you, you have, have an on-call type of income? You, you can't really plan for any expenses. Yeah, and even if you kind of look at Uber drivers or um, or any food delivery driver, that's kind of the same thing as well. Kind of more pickup so jobs. Are they saying societies like all jobs are moving that way, where it becomes on like on call or whatever? Like whenever the company needs a, someone, they give them a call and they show up, do their work, and then wait for the next call. They're just saying that you know society is thinking up new ways to employ millennials, and that's one of them, right? So that's not all jobs going that way, but it's just a. So they're kind of trying to add more jobs to uh, the economy in a way. Like, well, I, with- I think companies are trying to manage their, you know, be, make these expenses more manageable. I, I, I think this whole thing. You guys tell me what you think. So th- this goes back to everything's made in China. You know, if you go to Walmart, everything's made in China, and and. That when when it's made in China, it means it's not made in Canada. Meaning, th- those w- jobs don't exist in Canada. So you can you cannot continue to exploit the low cost regions of Mexico and China, and send all of our jobs over there, and and still expect the same standard of living here in Canada. You know, it, it it's gotta impact us. Does that? Do you guys see that? Is it, does that make sense? Yeah, I do. That's a that's it's true. It's really true. Because we're sending the jobs away to different countries, we're not we're not keeping with their resources within our country. So some some jobs are not impacted by this. So like Mike, what you do, it, obviously you, the engineering that you do can't be done. You know, it's 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 buildings and, and structures, right? You can't you can't farm. It has that kind to be of local. Yeah, yeah. But you know, as someone who does what you do, Courtney, that could be outsourced. Oh, to easily. Offshore. And for, for anyone and else, I'm, I'm just, I, I'm web content and social media that's in, in marketing. So the, again, yeah, that could easily be done by someone else. And what else. I do could easily be sent offshore, right? Finance. In fact, it is in a lot of companies. So you, you can't, every time one of these jobs leaves our country, it's going to be replaced by a, a lower paying job. That's why the, it left in the first place because companies are trying to become more profitable. So I, I do, there was one more point I wanted to cover within this kind of, this point that we're in right now is that 
politicians keep talking about the middle class and families. And I kind of, I right now, I mean, if you look around, we have uh, healthcare coverage for, uh, for available for anyone under the age of 25. I mean, that is... That is an opportunity for our, our our young kind of adults entering the workforce. I, I think you know we, that that is a true statement, and it tends to be the middle class the the I'll say the the middle class with a family. They tend to be the people who vote, right? For the most part, statistically, if you and I'll say a lot of millennials maybe don't cast a ballot, and so the maybe the politicians aren't catering to their needs. What do you guys think of that? No, I think I think maybe millennials are getting more and more involved as they get older. I th- do you guys vote? I do. I vote, but I, I think uh, also politicians are becoming younger, so I, I think it it's making it so they can connect better with the younger millennials. That's true. I think Courtney, you're good. A good point is that the uh, prescriptions are being covered by provincial health care for everyone under the age of twenty five in Ontario. That's a good example. How that, that maybe that statement is not completely true. I mean, I, this article was just it was updated in March of 2017, so a lot again has changed since then. But I I do think that I mean it, that helps it a lot of, of people trying to get started and definitely takes away some of those costs. If I could make a change in, in in policy, I think tax dollars well spent would be on making edu- post secondary education more affordable, because you would just increase people's earning potential and I, I just think that that is money well spent on that sort of demographic of people but th- well, that- have we ever talked about that the return on investment of uh of education like you, you think about how much you're spending on it, and i agree it should be cheaper but like if you think about how much you're spending on it and then the amount your your earning potential after you you get your education it is it's just like night and day like your return on investment's insane oh, it, it is it, there's no better investment in, in our country that you can make but you know I want to retract something I said earlier. So this generation, education has never been more expensive than it is now. And it's from when I went to school, it was dirt cheap compared to now. So I will give that this this generation that is that their student loans, their student debt, that is a real burden that generations before you didn't have. But that requirement has always existed or been a good idea to get a post-secondary education. But it has been, never been more expensive and I, I think that is a, a puts them like to start out your working life with a negative net worth is real hard. And, and I'll give them that. That is a challenge I didn't have and the generation before me didn't have. So I don't know how you guys feel about that, but that, that is that that one's real. I, I, I also think with the higher the higher costs, I think there's a lot more ways that schools and like the government are trying to help. I know you get like there's lots of uh, OSAP grants in Ontario, OSAP grants, but but they always existed, and there's it's always been that way. Then because I, I don't know, I just yeah. feel like there's there's a lot of places where they try to get you money as well. And no, but that, that's those those opportunities were always there. And, and on top of what I just said, it's never been more important for somebody to have an education than it is now because there was a time where you could get out of high school and get a really good paying factory job and support a family with it. And I remember people would work at like uh, Sears or Eaton's, if you can remember that store. Is a, in, so that's in retail and they would support a family on that income. And so you could, you could go out of high school, get a good job, support a family and, and not have post-secondary education. But today... I think that's highly unlikely. I do want to add, though, that to your point, Trevor, earlier about 
having more education. I, I always, I always kind of theoreticize about how, I mean, yes, the, we would be, we would be such a kind of, education is never a bad thing. Obviously it's always good, but do you, do you think that the kind of education inflation will kind of occur where we, we, it won't be as, like we will all require more education to achieve what we do achieve now? So you're saying if everyone had a BA, the BA would be diluted. Yeah. Well, it already is. Uh, you and look so, at it like it's so hard to get a... So many people are struggling with degrees out, or get jobs with degrees out of school. So now you need like a master's degree to set you apart. Or even just actually, uh, I, I was able to achieve the job I have now just with coupling it with a co- like a college um, certificate. So, so the... the so the... You know, actually, so by more people getting uh, uh, undergrad we've diluted the impact of, of what an undergrad is and it, but that cost base is being added to everyone's bill so we're actually by educating everybody we're, we're actually hurting us as a society because we've just increased the cost of raising a child right by you need a ba now just 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 to be a person now in our society which which i think is so sad just because of how how highly i'm sure you mike and and i have have benefited and you too trevor and and everyone has benefited from achieving an education it, it just makes you more critical more analytical it really it really makes you it kind of contributes to your your function in society and I, it's 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 really unfortunate that that would uh, would happen well the the bag of goods i was sold when i graduated post-secondary was that they they kind of give you this mentality okay world i'm ready come and get me is that the kind of the the the, the setup you were given Yes and no, I would say. I mean, I think maybe for three seconds post-graduation or, or three seconds in, in kind of your last term of school, yes, maybe. But then after, I mean, I have I applied back when I was finishing up school to over seriously 100 jobs and kind of when that starts sinking in that that's, that mentality is not going to get you anywhere is where it kind of the reality hits you. So the next, the next point within Rob Carrick's article is student debt is manageable if you study the right things. And this this point is, I mean, I, I it's a good one. And Rob Carey says here, did an, anyone ever tell you to follow your passion passion in your studies? Wrong. Find the path where your your passion meets a career that le- lets you pay off any student debts you incur and move on with life. And now, this is a uh, you know so so important. Like I, I know I know uh, people that would say get a history degree, a degree in history, and they would do it because they like history. And so, but they don't really have a, a career path planned out with that degree. Now, if you were going to become a teacher, okay, that makes sense. Or if you definitely were going to go into get a master's degree or some sort of postgrad and you just needed a BA, right, to, to get into that program, that makes sense. But like, do you guys know anybody who got a, re- a really bad degree? Well, I I know for my my best friend, for instance, she she did do her undergrad in, in business, but again, she is now in her master's for social work. So, again, and she took the history degree because she was going to pursue um law, which was a, definitely a good background there. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, so I I think that works there, but I. I so, Mike, do you know of any bad degrees? I don't know because I think it goes back to that thing. Like, so we're talking like if you were to get a degree. And you take that degree and just go and try to get a job right out of school with that degree. Like we're classifying that as a bad degree. Well, if you if you if you paid for four years of university and you come out the other end 
wanting to find a job and you can't, I would say you probably went down the wrong educational path. But you know what? I wanna I I wanna I wanna stop there because I I have my undergrad is in business and communications, two very useful areas of study, I feel at least. And yet I wasn't able to find a job until I coupled it with um, further, more specific college level education. I like that word specific. Like I, I think that's what employers are looking for now is is specific education. Like I, I know in school, like you learn so much. Like it's such a broad area of stuff you learn that i think like uh employers when they see you just got a ba or whatever it's too broad like they want to see you got like a very specific set of skills for the job they they have almost like it's kind of like that um what were we talking about that just in time jobs or whatever like like they're looking for people with a very specific set of skills almost i would agree that they want specific skills but they they also want it used to be that if you had a ba you've demonstrated your ability to learn and employers want people who are eager and able to learn new jobs and new skills while they get while they well when they're employed. I agree with that, but you're also missing a wealth of actual practical knowledge and practical skills. I mean, I cannot do the job I do now without my without the the college level background as well because I mean, yes, I learned a lot. Yes, it was a valuable education university, but it it didn't really give me any practical skills to to re- directly apply to the workforce. I always hear this thing, if they always say that university teach how to solve problems. And, and then I think after that, and, and maybe back back in the day, that, that was all you needed. Like if you had a higher level of problem solving skills, you were good. Whereas now I think that society, we're, we're becoming more sophisticated. We're solving higher level problems that well, you don't need to just know how to solve problems really well. You need to like have a specific skill set and know how to solve problems. Like I think it's just we're we're evolving in the way that the level we're look we're dealing with stuff in society. I think. Now that's interesting. So, uh, just problem just just the ability to solve problems isn't enough anymore. What did we say? Like the unique challenges, or whatever. I think it's it's new opportunities. This is an opportunity to bring another another skill set to the workplace that that'll set you apart. Not. I need this extra skill to survive. In the future, I wouldn't be surprised if, I know Trevor, you deal a lot with uh, Excel. Like I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if in the future it, it comes to the thing where your business degree, you have your, you're working towards like your CPA, but then you need as well specific courses on Excel. Like you need to just be a master in that. For you, I know you evolve, you generate those skills while working, but I think, I guess because the work world's coming so quick, we need have to, to have show the up skills. With those skills. Yeah, yeah, and I think, that, I think that's what employers want. They want you to be ready to go day one. Hit the ground running. And I, I think it goes back to the whole money is, is employers, they can't afford for you to, to waste their money trying to learn. They need you to know right away and, and be ready to go and not waste their money. No, I, I agree that they need, they need uh, you know, margins are so thin. They need people that can add value right away. So the next point in Rob Carrick's article is the point of be entrepreneurial. He says, if the job market is shutting you out, create your own work. We worship tech entrepreneurs, but you can be successful finding a niche anywhere in the economy. I would agree with this, but I think you can also have an entrepreneurial mindset as an employee, which would which could set you apart. So a lot of times I know I bring this to my workplaces is I I look to improve like an entrepreneur would. I look I, I look for opportunities. I look for an edge. So you you don't have to be you know wanting to start your own business to to be entrepreneurial and benefit from that. I don't know if you guys have had that experience. Well, Courtney, uh, I think you have a pretty good example. I know we were talking uh, last weekend, but we were talking about your job and, and how uh, it's kind of, you said it was a smaller business and how everyone's kind of kind of willing 
to to just kind of step in and, and do what needs to get done. And I, I think that's a, a very entrepreneurial mindset. So I got me thinking, it's like, yeah, employer employees have to be entrepreneurial. And and that's it's actually it's actually called an entrepreneur. And it's 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 it's, a, it's very it's very popular. And I think that is kind of the competitive edge that key, is gonna keep us there. And 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 because there are limited there's, the job market is, I think, shrinking. So, or uh, not shrinking, but in the sense that our jobs are being replaced. I think you, we have to have that kind of do whatever it takes mentality. But to Mike's point, the smaller the organization, the more entrepreneurial you need to be. Sure, you need to kind of be the jack of all trades and, and a problem solver. That's again a great point. I think that whole thing, like you said, Trevor, being like a go-getter, like you, you just that extra level of just wanting to challenge a system and and go above and beyond and stuff. Well, I have this theory about employees, and I'm saying in most organizations, 90% of the people are just showing up, just showing up, putting in their time and going home. And there's this 10%, 10%, which is a really small number, that actually show up and want to make a difference. And they, they might be managers, they might just be employees, they could be line workers, but there's 10% that, that actually are want to deliver a value above and beyond the, the requirement. And 90% of the people, they just show up. I think it's sad. If, if more people were go-getters or, or wanted to deliver that extra value, I, I think as a, a working economy, we would be better for it. So the next point in this Zen Rob's character article is banks see you as a younger version of your parents. So Rob says they're mainly interested in grooming you to be a passive, lifelong consumer of the products they sell. Checking accounts, mutual funds, mortgages, lines of credits, and more. Your goal, however, should be pay nothing for banking and very little for investing. If your bank can't deliver, find one that can. So what kind of services do you two use at a bank? For me, all... All, all I use personally is a high interest saving account, a check, and kind of two checking accounts. And what do you do with your checks? Like that, that's a pretty foreign thing today, writing a check. Um, I with the bank I'm with, I get them for free, and I just use use them for paying rent with. Just rent, but you could probably pay your rent through an e transfer. Yeah, oh, maybe? definitely, definitely. Yeah. Okay, so check checks are not a requir- a requirement for you. What about you, Mike? What kind of banking services do you use? I go. I use Simply Financial. So there's no fees attached to banking, which is really nice. And it's mainly um, like I have a checkings account, savings account, and it's mainly just like e-transfers and stuff. Uh, it's, it's, it's all online. Like I pay my bills online. So it's, it's all paperless. So when was the last time you guys were actually in a bank? I would say, well, be- I don't know. Probably the like five years to, ago. The fact that you have to pause and think about it. Probably tells for me my that- visa. For my visa, and that was, I was at, uh, I, I bank, I so I was probably at a bank last for 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 that. So I I think so. Mike mentioned Simply Financial, and Tangerine is another one. These are are um, sort of discount brands of the five major banks. You know, they they're they're starting to spin off these other companies that are going to appeal to millennials. I, I, I equate traditional banking to cable TV. I mean, there's a whole generation being lost on. on traditional banking so i and i i just don't get why these banks aren't are, are just kind of they're kind of taking the whole when you graduate university kind of mentality like come and get me world the ban- these banks are kind of assuming the same kind of positions or m- maybe mighty and powerful and assuming that they that people will come to them but i think they have to get competitive well the baby boomers are still going into banks and they still have lots of money to spend so that 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 segment of the market still exists. I mean, my parents still go to the bank every week, and I don't know what they do there, but they do go there. 
And I live in a town that's got a lot of retired people. And if I happen to be walking by a bank when I, in a, you know, down the street, I look in and there's, there's a lot of people in there that generally look like boomers to me. So there's still a segment of the population to be serviced in a traditional banking sense. But I think there's a lot of people like young uh, people like my age that are, are still going to the traditional banks. Cause I, I think the new ones like Simply and Tangerine, they're, they're just, uh, they're so new that people haven't caught on to them as much. And they're so small that uh, they're not aware of them. It, it, that is where it's going though. Like, I mean, if you're not using sure, one of these, yeah. these discount sort of spun off banking entities, uh, you're paying too much. That's for sure. Well, I, I think what's going to happen is it's going to go to the point where everyone's jumping onto these, the Simply and Tangerine, and they probably end up getting rid of those, and, and the, the big banks will cut out their fees and whatnot, because it, 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 they'll want to be the main people again. So here's, here's something that leads back to something we talked earlier. So the more people that start using these online banks, guess what's happening to those traditional banking jobs? They're, they're they, gone. They're gone. Right? Yeah. So there's an, another challenge being laid in front of this generation, right? Is, is if, you, if you started your career in banking, uh, you might not be able to finish it. So, so now here's something. If, if we're taking away jobs like that, say, and so now someone can't just, just be a bank teller. They, they got to be something higher, you know, in the banking world. Like, is that not uh, motivating the world to, to advance themselves more? Like everyone's, everyone's fighting to, to do more technical jobs, you know, try to be more entrepreneurial. Like, like, is that not? Here's what's happening with that. So it's not a one for one trade off, but for every bank teller they laid off because someone, people are start, stop using traditional banking. There's an IT support person needed in the online banking world. To, to you know to modify programming and and, and, and refine that that automated process so you know that the job didn't completely disappear but it, it it's but like I say for every bank teller they're not replacing it with an IT person so it's not a one for one but there is there is a shift so what you're saying Mike is the education need so if, if you were educated in traditional banking you could retrain yourself into IT right it's or even to to be like I don't know the banking world, but like be a banking manager or be a like some kind of financial advisor or something. You might push the bubble and like by by taking out those jobs, you're you're, you're making everyone forcing everyone to kind of push the bubble a bit and push society forward. So you're saying that the bank could move this this. Uh, along faster by reducing the services at traditional banks well not not even just banks like factories and stuff like if you take away say a factory worker's job and and now all of a sudden you have a machine doing that well then i guess it's the same thing as it's a trade-off so now everyone's they're they're planning the processes for the factory like you're kind of pushing everyone up the level requiring them to educate themselves themselves more yeah and then in doing so society's becoming better problem solvers and in doing that, we're solving bigger problems. And I, and I think it keeps growing our society. So I think it's almost that thing where uh, there's a lot of jobs being taken away, but I think it's opening opportunities for society to, to, to move up and, and solve bigger problems and advance ourselves. It, it, so you're back to this thing, rather than saying this generation has challenges, they have opportunities. Opportunities. Yeah. I, you, you were saying before, like everyone used to work in a factory, right? I mean, factory workers do great stuff and stuff. I don't want to knock that. Fairly repetitive process. There's not a lot of problem solving. So they, they take those jobs away and, and now it's all being done by a machine. And so, so now it's becoming that thing where, well, now all those people say who were 
in those factory jobs. Now they're designing the the stuff, the, the, the machines, and that's more of a problem solving thing. So then if that's the bar now, we're, we're solving higher problems. So then, so say somehow we start making that simplified, then there's a new bar. And, and, and then like our level of problem solving is getting higher where we're trying to create machines that are designing machines kind of that's a kind of an extreme example but no i see where you're going with that but but it, it, it see it as opportunity not as challenges it, yeah it's yeah. kind of the foundation of that thought process yeah I, I like that so next one here is credit cards are a trap and i think i think that is pretty self-explanatory well you know credit cards are and they aren't so Credit cards, they, you know, we talked on a previous shows that, that you can get credit cards with perks. And I have one that I use for my groceries. And I, a couple of times a year, I, I, I go grocery shopping for free. Well, that's a great perk. The key is use credit cards as a transaction tool, not a credit tool. Because if you need credit, and there's times in your life when you do, there's cheaper credit to, to available than, than through a credit card. Like you could go get a, a car loan. You could get a student loan. You can get a mortgage. But the most expensive credit you can ever get is through a credit card. But it's a it's a safe, also very safe transaction tool where the credit company credit card company kind of assumes uh, any fraudulent transaction. So I'm not against credit cards. Do you guys use credit cards? I use them for online purchases or if I need to make large purchases that uh, my bank card won't allow, like there's a limit on it. It's, it's, so it's just small things that, uh, what, what's the, the interest rates on credit cards? Like, aren't, isn't it just insanely high? Oh, it's, it's like 20, 24% or something. I, I, I don't pay it. So I, I don't actually look at it. That's just crazy. Courtney, are you a fan of credit cards? Or are you? Oh yeah, I am. I I know. I I, I have with my, the way my bank accounts are set up. I kind of have to transfer. It takes a kind of a day to move money from my high interest savings account to my other checking account. So, I mean, I am such a proponent. Half the time, I forget my wallet at home sometimes too. So I have my um, credit card. Simply doesn't go onto um, Apple Pay, unfortunately. So I have my credit card on my phone, and it's been a lifesaver. So just from the kind of the convenience aspect, where you kind of treat. Where you don't know, you just kind of treat your your kind of credit card as an extension of your debit card when you don't have it, kind of like that, and you kind of just really manageable kind of expenses um, is how so, I kind of use it. So I think if this generation was being advised to stay away from credit cards, I think that would be bad advice. I think that is the the payment uh, the transaction tool of the future. Well, you, even things online, you, if you want to buy something online, you need a credit card for it. Like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to use the word impossible, but it's very challenging yeah. to buy something any other way. And, and online purchases can get more and more common. Uh, I know there's an Amazon store. I've I seen a video of this where you, you walk in and you put stuff in your bag and there's cameras all over the store. So it's, it's monitoring what you're doing. And as you put things in your bag, it's being t- totaled on your account. And then you just walk out the door and you get emailed a bill. So they kind of know what you bought based on all these cameras. And there's no register. There's no... So I would say your your phone is actually going to be the payment tool of the future. And it, maybe it won't even be called a credit card. It'll be called something else. But it, that'll be your, your payment tool. I think that's... I think that's... It's, it's, it's cool, but it, it's crazy to see how far every, it's coming. Like, I don't know if this would be a complete show if I didn't mention something about Apple. So I'm going to I'm gonna talk about the Apple Watch, which is crazy expensive. Not advertised by Apple. <laughs> no. <laughs> the Apple Watch is just, it's the price of that thing is insane. But, but you can use your Apple Watch to pay for things. So it literally, you know, you hold that up to one of those um, card readers. That, that is the future. Have you ever seen the movie In Time? Yeah. 
That's I almost picture that with a uh, paying with your wrist or whatever. Like, yeah. Just, well, that's kind of what it's it. like. Yeah, yeah you pay yeah. with your wrist. So I, I think, um, yeah, that's the payment method of the future, without question. Either that or a chip in the back of our neck or something. <laughs> something. <laughs> uh, so next point here in the list is lean on your parents, but don't bury them. So um, Rob Carrick says here, move back home if you can't afford to live on your, on your own after graduation and repay any student debt, but don't be a parasite. Recognize the extra cost to your parents and contribute as you can. Do not accept parental help with your debts and other costs unless your mom and dad have the money. If they wreck their personal, their finances helping you, you may be helping to support them 20 or 30 years in the future. So I think this is an important thing to note in. Unless you have kids, you'll never understand this, but parents would do, would, would literally do whatever it took to help their, their children survive. They would empty their bank accounts if they, to some degree, to help their child have an easier time in life than they did. And the, the danger is what this says is you, is that parent maybe setting themselves up to be dependent on their child in the future. So that is such a fine line to walk. It's important that, that again, as, as a child, you'll never know until you have kids of your own, but you could literally exploit your parents in, into poverty in some cases. And I guess the other thing is, if parents help their children too much, you're actually, it's almost child abuse in a way because your, your child is, is not becoming resourceful and not being able to survive in the world on their own. So you, you, you will always be there helping them. So that's kind of a, a bad road to go down. So the next point in the list is houses are luxury goods. And I, and I, this again, Brent kind of comes back to what we we're talking about earlier, but treat yourself if you can afford to, but don't feel bad if you can't. House prices have been rising a lot faster than incomes in recent years. And in some cities, they're getting too costly for young buyers outside of professions generating big six-figure incomes. Renting is perfectly fine as long as you aggressively save and invest for the future. I don't like the word treat yourself in houses in the same sentence. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, <laughs> but you know what? I also don't like the point of, um, of, of, of the kind of, the idea of tr- like treating yourself as well, just in general, not even about housing. Well, no, I think the point that he's making here is that houses are a luxury. So in essence, if you buy a house, you kind of are treating yourself to a luxury, right? It, it's not housing or shelter as a basic necessity of life. It becomes a luxury good because it, it, it's bigger than you need and it has more amenities than you need. So I, I think he's saying know that housing can be a luxury so I read the book, The Simple Path to Wealth by J.L. Collins, and it was a book on investing. And it was all about investing in, in, in index funds. And this is not an investing podcast, but I, I really like J.L. Collins, and it was a really good read. I recommend it to everybody. But the whole book was on investing. And the closing thoughts in that book were titled, Houses are a Very Expensive Indulgence. And then he talked about just what I said, you know, you tend to buy more house than you need. And, but that is how he felt he needed to close that, that fabulous book with that thought. And I, I couldn't agree with him more. So housing, houses are generally speaking, you drive through a new subdivision in my town, you're hard to press to find a house under 2000, 2,500 square feet. That is way more house than most people need for basic shelter. And I, I love that this thing. You've probably heard me say it before the functional utility of something when you move beyond the functional utility of shelter of a house it becomes a, a luxury a lifestyle expense so i i think 
in this country, homeowner home ownership is given way too much emphasis. Do you guys feel like there's way too much focus on home ownership? Oh, for sure. And I, I think there is, but I think also our generation is shifting more towards understanding that it, renting is acceptable and it's kind of the financially kind of the only kind of financial option that's for some people. So the very last uh, point within Rob Carrick's article here is that don't live by, don't live your life by your parents' timetable. So Rob Carrick says here, you'll probably live longer, which means you can take more time to build, find and build a career, buy a ho- house and start a family. Expect to work longer and don't pay any mind to the antique expression early retirement. By the time you retire, 65 will be early. So I, I, I think that is so well said and I agree with that wholeheartedly. Yeah. I fully agree with that. Like, if you think of uh, the horrible lifestyle choices from a health standpoint that, say, the baby boomers made, and not just through, uh, I'm not not saying they made bad decisions, just the, the, the knowledge about what's healthy and what isn't has evolved, right? So if you think of how long they're living, and then the knowledge that your generation's armed with about, you know, a healthy lifestyle, like, when I, when I was a kid, when I saw somebody who didn't smoke, it was kind of odd. I'm thinking, what? You know, there's an adult who doesn't smoke. Isn't that strange, right? Now, smoking is so, in your generation. Even look at like school, like because we've talked about that a lot, this podcast. Uh, it used to be you, you got out of high school or whatever, and you started kind of being an adult. You, you got into the working force, and, and your, your life kind of started there. So it, it kind of moved a lot of your your life events ahead whereas is now like you know you go to post-secondary and that that can take somewhere four to like six years extra so it kind of moves that whole just that whole timeline like right there and yeah i know so i fully agree with that no that's a good point so you're you're because you're being your your preparation for life is is being stretched out longer and longer you don't actually start your adulthood and in all your life events until maybe you know maybe 10 years later than than uh, a baby boomer did and plus you're gonna live longer because you know that the health your health is going to be better you're just your lifestyle so working till 65 i I guess is going to be like the new 55 it's it's going to be you'll you'll probably live to be the average age is probably going to be stretched out into the 90s now instead of the 80s so i i think you know, if you start hitting the panic button saying, you know, I'm not going to be able to retire early as a millennial, maybe you've got to reorient reorient yourself and, and redefine early. And and I think that whole thing we were talking about with opportunity versus unique challenges is I think uh, if, you, if you're trying to follow the timeline of your parents, then you're going to try to follow what they were doing. And I think it's going to, uh, you're going to end up having that unique challenges instead of defining your own timeline and creating new opportunities. No, that's true. You know, here's a timeline I, I, I was reading about and it, it's, it's millennials are, are doing this or contemplating this is intermittent retirement. So you work for, you know, five years and you take three years off and then you work for eight years and you take five years off. And then, and when you, when you go back to work, you go back to a new or a slightly different career. So you, you get a lot of variety and they just keep doing that. And then you you might work till you're 75, but you will have not worked for so many years along the way that you kind of had this intermittent retirement when you were young and had energy. 
I like that because instead of you always hear of people like they, they work the 20 year career at a or 25 year career at a the same place and it, it created by the end they were so exhausted of it that they just didn't care and I think that's kind of interesting that like it'd be excitement right through your entire career well my my youngest daughter sent me a text message the other day she was in class and it was some sort of careers class and she says you know my teacher says that I'm gonna have four careers over the course of my life isn't that insane and I, I texted her back saying, you know what's insane is doing the same thing for 30 years. That's insane. So when you stand back and look at which one of those makes more sense, you know, having four different careers makes a lot more, you know, sounds like a lot more pleasant life than grinding out the exact same thing for 30 years. And and I think um, the other thing is like when when you're when you're just getting out of school and stuff, uh, there's there's a lot of pressure on what are you gonna do and, and making the right decision because you feel like you're making a, a twenty year decision, thirty year decision, and if you break it down into those those five year periods, you're it's it's a lot less stressful there. Like because you say okay, every four years or like every five years, I'm gonna change my career. Well, that's not that bad. Like like that's a you get a new opportunity, like like to try something new every five years. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, you're right. You wouldn't be. It wouldn't be this uh, this internal struggle of you know should I should I do this or should I do this because you know like you say it's it's you're if you're committing to it for a lifetime you want to really think it through. But if it's just a five year window, well, I'll give it a try. Is the mindset you could take? So I think that brings us to the end of our show today on kind of starting out as a young millennial. Do either of you have any kind of takeaways for this for this episode? Yeah, I, I think the most important thing was don't follow the path of the generation before you because your road is going to look much different. So um, on that note, that brings us to the end of our show. Thank you so much to all the listeners for tuning in today and joining us. If you um, want to weigh in on this episode at all, um, send us an email at livelifesimple365 at gmail.com or head over to our website, livelifesimple.ca. There's a contact submission form. You can leave anything there and we'd love to kind of share it with all of our listeners on an upcoming episode. So until next week, Keep it simple.